series this morning. You know, back in 1957, Dallas had one of its most deadly tornadoes. It was in the spring, it was 4.15 in the afternoon, and a tornado began its deadly march, starting about at what, as we know of now, Dallas Executive Airport, then Redbird Airport, and moved all the way up through Wynwood Village, Kessler Park, and all the way almost to downtown Dallas. Ten people lost their lives that day. It became one of the most recorded tornado events up to that point. And so a lot of information was gained. A lot of records were gained that day that helped forecasters from that point forward know how to track storms. It's really important in our life to understand why storms come, to learn from them and respond to God properly. Because God introduces storms into our lives for a purpose. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can know for certain that he is not doing so because he is out to get you. He's not condemning you. He is not rejecting you. But he will teach you through the storm. Amen? And for those who have not yet even come to know him, he will use the storm to bring you to a place where your eyes are opened to his greatness. Amen? The storms are for his glory. The storms are for our good. That's why it is important to not reject the storms, not become bitter in the storms, not resent, not become jealous of those not in the storm, but to accept what God is doing in your life in the midst of the storm so that you can see some things you've never seen before. Amen? So here's kind of our big point today I want us to walk away with as we walk through this message today and you hear the story. Here it is. God will use storms to open our eyes to the glory of Jesus. You know, it's a funny thing that we do. We kind of go through our life and, and we set our own path, go our own way. We like to put down our roots and do our thing, even sometimes when it's contrary to what God wants us to do. We kind of say, Lord, I, I got this. I don't need the help. I got it. I want to do this, even though we might know God calls us to something different. God will bring storms in our life to say, this is not what I have for you. I've got something more for you. It's interesting in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you see Jesus talking to this, these new believers, these disciples, and he says to them there, I, I want you to leave this place. I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to go into Jerusalem and Judea and beyond. And that's kind of the promise that God, that Jesus gives them. That's the command that Jesus gives them. Don't stay, Go. So that's Acts chapter 1. It's interesting when you read over a little bit further in Acts chapter 8, there's some persecution that develops. There's some problems, some storms begin to brew for the young church. And it says in Acts 8 verse 1, and in that day there was a great persecution on the church at Jerusalem, a storm, and all were scattered the persecution, the storm, caused them to have to flee, to run. Listen to where it says they scattered. 
and in all Judea and Samaria. God used the storm to get them uprooted to go to the place he wanted them to go to begin with. That's what he called them to. They put down their roots and he sent a storm. It's how God works. We put down our roots, he uproots the roots and sends us to where he calls us to go. The Apostle Paul, one of the most notable figures in the New Testament apart from Jesus, the man of perhaps the greatest influence in the New Testament, had put down his roots. He had said, I know what I know. I'm going to do what I do. He was a very religious man, walked in the law, and said no to Jesus. Very religious, no to Jesus. Keeper of the law, no to Jesus. Very learned, educated man. Very socially elite, but no to Jesus. Until one day, God introduced a storm into his life. So follow me in this passage here in the book of Acts. In chapter 9, it says this, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. This is the apostle Paul. At this point, he is Saul. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, then he fell to the ground. He is being introduced to a storm. A storm is about to really kind of wreck his life. He's having this journey, he's on it, and this light shows up, and it's so intense, the moment is so overwhelming that he's, he falls to the ground. It goes on in verse 4, and it says this, And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God speaks to him in the midst of the storm he's going through. Look at Paul's response, verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? Saul is a, he's a guy that knows the Scriptures before that point. He knew the law. He knew the sacrifices. He knew about the high priest. He knew about the temple. He knew all of that. But he did not recognized Jesus when he was speaking to him. And so the storm catches him in this moment. And he says, who are you, Lord? Verse 6. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul, you're doing your thing. You're going your way. I've got to come in and, and interrupt what you're doing. I've got to interrupt this broadcast for just a moment. I've got to shut down your internet for just a moment, Saul, so you listen to me. I've got to bring an event into your life, Saul, that will cause you to stop for just a moment and listen to me. And he, he puts him on the ground. He brings the storm to readjust his focus. And he says, Saul, I am Jesus. The passage goes on and it says this, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Saul was uttering some words he had never uttered before in his life. He was experiencing something he had never experienced before in his life. He was surrendering his heart to Jesus. And he demonstrated it by saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? He was putting himself in a place of submission. Whatever it is, Lord, I'll do it. You've brought a storm in. You've got my attention. Now, 
What do you want me to do? He didn't curse. He didn't complain. He wasn't jealous of somebody else not going through what he was going through. He didn't become bitter. He didn't become resentful. He simply said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he became a changed man because of this moment. Amen. Amen. Today, you're going to hear the story of a man who in some ways had an experience like this. A man born in a different place who experienced Jesus and his life was forever changed. So I want you to give a warm vertical welcome to one of our own here, Mr. Christopher Invani. Christopher, come on up to the stage. I hope you have had a chance to meet Christopher. If you haven't, uh, you're going to have even more reason to after today. Have a seat, sir. Very good. Christopher and his family have been attending here for a while, so I'll let, I'll let him tell us about himself and his family and where you live and all that kind of stuff. Go ahead. Um, Christopher and Vani, uh, we have been attending here since the, officially since last uh, Labor Day weekend, uh, last September. Uh, we came here, we moved here about three years ago from Wisconsin. My wife is from Wisconsin. The, my wife is uh, sitting in the back with our youngest son, uh, Bryce. He's 13 years old. Our oldest one is out of town. Um, so we moved here three years ago. Uh, we had gone back to the church we used to attend, but it's just, we didn't have, we didn't feel connected anymore. We've been gone for 10 years, and we start um, looking for churches. And um, we came out here the first Sunday in August, actually, and uh, I told Carol, I said, well, she was praying for me, I said, I think we found a house. I don't know if you remember that conversation or not, <laughs> you and I had. But you prayed for us, and I said, we found a house. Yeah. We found a home, a uh, church that we want to attend. And... Um, We've been here since. We love the uh, Wednesday morning Bible story, uh, Bible studies, men's Bible studies. I have to say Mark actually was the foundation of the reason we came out here. Mark Matoyer, um, he's a good friend of mine for many, many years ago, and he uh, is a patient of mine, and he invited me to just come out to church one day. And um, thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. And, yeah, awesome. And thank you. So tell everybody what you do for a living. I'm an eye doctor, um, and um, been doing this since 1993. Okay. Very good. So you weren't born in Texas. You weren't. Why? <laughs> no, no, I'm just, just is stating it, is a fact. It because of my accent? No, no, no. Because right. I, could, I could get just, a twang. Just so. stating a fact. You weren't born in Texas and you weren't born in the United States. Tell everybody where you were born and a little bit about life growing up. I was born in Tehran, Iran, or Iran, and um, in 1964. Um, I have an older brother, a younger sister. Um, my father was uh, one of the ranking officers in the Shah's regime, so we grew up um, in Shah's time in, um, in Iran all the way till 1979 with the revolution. And uh, of course, um, a lot of people lost their jobs, lost their lives. But um, life was really um, just like actually it is here in the United States in many ways. Uh, uh, the, the standing joke among friends and family members was we should petition the United States for a, another uh, star on their flag. Uh, as a 51st flag because we everything that we did was so Americanized. Uh, we had uh, a lot of American companies. I just met a gentleman the other day in my office, actually. He says, well, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from the United States. He says, no, where were you born? <laughs> and I said, I was born in Iran. And he says, well, I was in Iran until I was 17 years old. His dad was one of the uh, ranking officers in uh, the U.S. Air Force who was training the Iranian soldiers in, in uh, battle. And um, so there are a lot of American soldiers, American uh, influence in our lives. We had 
not as much freedom as we do here, but we had a lot of freedom to do a lot of things we wanted to do, and uh, 1979 changed it all. So, but um, it was very similar to growing up, uh, as uh, you know, some of the kids in this country go through uh, for about 14 years of my life, the okay. first 14 years. All right. Uh, now, one of the differences in your home uh, is the faith that is there. Yes. Talk about that for just a moment. Um, of course, majority majority religion is uh, Muslim, the most uh, Islam. Uh, most people in Iran are Muslims. The Shiite Muslims, uh, there are two different branches, but that's a different story. Uh, my parents were devout, not fanatic, devout Muslims. Um, they practiced the things they were supposed to do. Um, thankfully, I'm, I'm grateful for that. They never forced it upon us to do the things they did. We did the um, tour of the holy cities once a year. We, they did their, they paid their dues, what they had to do to be a good Muslim. And, um, you know, I practiced, I did some fasting, I did some five times prayers, like we had to, we had to attend uh, classes, religious classes as a part of our curriculum at school. Um, so we did that, um, and again, I, try, I practiced it, but not to a point that I was living it, that was just by name. And I hate to sound like this, but just like the rest of the Muslims, uh, most of the Muslims that you meet, they're Muslims by name, but they don't practice it. Mm. Uh, so again, uh, they were devout. They did prayers, uh, they fasted, they did what they were supposed to do, um, but um, again, it was just never okay. crammed down our throat. So at the time, it's, it's the 70s, there's some turmoil. Talk about that for just a moment because it's, going to, um, it's about to affect the rest of the story for you. What's, what's happening in the culture in Iran about that time? Um, in 1978, um, the Ayatollah, who was exiled in 1963 or so for 15 years because of his religious and his uh, political opinions, um, he it was time for him to come back, and he uh, encouraged people to uprise against uh, the Shah's government. Um, and he brought up a lot of um, corruptions, uh, things that had happened, and the fact that the, uh, the Shah of Iran was not practicing Islam and the, the true Islam or so. And, uh, and the way of life, because the Americans were given uh, so much power, so much um, attention in Iran, and he was anti-America, um, he basically encouraged people to get on the streets, get to the streets, uh, close businesses. I remember I was a student, a uh, ninth grade student at the time, and uh, they encouraged to, uh, for students to uprise, get out of schools, close the schools, go to the streets, and demonstrate against Shah's government. This was in, it started in September of 1978. It took about five months, and he was finally successful to um, overthrow Shah's government. Mm -hmm. And um, Shah and his family left in um, January of 79, and the revolution, um, of the, the people won, uh, if you want to call it that, uh, in February 12th of 1979. Uh, at this whole time, all the universities, all the schools were closed, businesses were closed, so the economy had shut down. Um, and um, 79 was the year that changed everything for a lot of people, uh, February. So your dad makes a decision uh, that forever changes your life. Uh, one significant and in some ways so significant, he doesn't even tell your mom about it. Correct. So talk about that decision. We made an attempt. Um, I knew, um, as I mentioned, I'm an eye doctor, and I knew from a child I was going to be a doctor, some, some kind of a doctor. That was my dream, to become one. And um, in 1979, after the revolution, they closed all the universities. So I was, uh, at the time, in 1979, I was a 10th grader. We decided that we just should come to the United States as a, in high school and then high school and graduate year. Uh, we gave my passport and all the information to U.S. Embassy in um, October of 79. 
and I'm aging myself, some of you guys don't, might not remember this, but in November 4th of 1979, uh, the hostages were taken, the, uh, the, uh, uh, I call them the cabbage heads, those are the clerics, but the clerics and the uh, Revolution Guard and the people attacked United States Embassy in, in Tehran, and the um, rest is history that they confiscated U.S. Uh, property, and uh, about a few days later, they called me up and said, well, come pick up your passport, and with the hope that I would have a visa in my passport so I could come to the United States. Um, I wanted to get my passport and it was empty. It was just not any visa issued. They didn't have time to issue a visa for me. So I stayed in Iran um, and I graduated from high school in 1982. This was the peak of Iran-Iraq war. And here in this country, we have selective service in Iran. It's not selective, it's a mandatory uh, two-year service that you have to sign up at your last year of high school, your senior year, and you have to go. Um, the principal of our school was my dad's best friend, and he gave me all the documents uh, of my senior years, my uh, uh, birth certificates, my pictures, the documents that I have signed, and my um, report cards. So according to their government, I'd never graduated from high school because the government didn't have any record of me graduating. Summer of 1982 was a really tough summer for us because I had to make a decision, what do I want to do? Do I want to go ahead and join the war and go to the war? or do I want to go pursue my dream and come to the United States? Um, and the only way I could do that, because I had not served, it was to leave Iran illegally. And um, so we uh, decided, that we talked about it, my dad and I talked about it a long time. My mom actually at the time was here in the United States visiting my brother who was going to school in Austin. And uh, we decided that was the best thing. One of my dad's friends uh, knew a smuggler who would smuggle people illegally out of the country and uh, we hired him, we paid him $10,000 to get me out of the country um, illegally uh, through the border. Wow, and you're how old at this point? I'm 17. 17 years old, Yes. and your dad did not tell your mom? We did not tell anybody, um, uh, even my sister. I remember that day, that it was a Monday afternoon, it was like yesterday, I, I left Iran, uh, my sister was coming home, Say happy bye. Yeah, this is not one of those moments where you're packing your bags and there's a great send-off and you've got all your luggage and you're going to the airport. This is very different. I left with um, $50 in my pocket and a one change of clothes. Because of the way I was leaving, I did not want to raise. That's what we were told, we were uh, taught as, uh, or yeah, educated, uh, that you do not want to raise any suspicious that you're going to go out of the country so you're not taking any personal belongings with you. Like I said, I had uh, my allergy medications, I had $50 in my pocket, and I had one change of clothes because what we told the government, because they have checkpoints, as you get close to the border to uh, Iraq, uh, Turkey, they know young kids are going to leave the country. So we were um, told um, not to take a whole lot with you. At the same time, the checkpoints, when they stop you and ask you questions, um, there was somebody who had died in that city that we're going to, so the smuggler told us, when they ask you where you're going, Tell them you're going to this guy's funeral because he just died, and they will let you pass through the checkpoint. And um, that's how we got through. It's about 14 hours of drive from Tehran, where I lived, to the, one of the border cities. So we drove there, and um, nobody knew about this. Um, the only person who knew about it was my dad, my dad's best friend who had recommended the smuggler who was waiting for me in Turkey, <coughs> and um, my uncle who came with me because uh, my dad would not let me go by myself because oh. I was so young. Um, so we drove about 14 hours uh, northwest of Tehran to the border, close to the Turkey border. Okay. So the goal is to get to America, but <coughs> there's several stops along the way. You don't just 
go from Iran to America yeah. overnight. We were promised uh, once I get to Turkey, um, I will be in the United States in two weeks. This is October of 1982 uh, that I left Iran. And, um, uh, you know, we, we were smug I was smuggled out of the country. I, uh, and that's a story by itself. It was just a very scary, uh, frightening story. Uh, because again, it was at a time of war, and um, if I was caught being leaving the country without proper documentations or so, and again, during the time of war, um, there was no questions asked. There was, you were executed on the spot by the soldiers. Mm -hmm. And as we were leaving the first night, actually, as we were crossing the border, we had to actually sit uh, in, in a farmland for about 45 minutes, and the guy told us, the smuggler told us, don't breathe, don't sneeze, don't cough, don't make a noise, because if they catch you, you guys are all dead. And, um, so you're just out in some pasture lands, that you're saying? Yes, we went through uh, several farmlands. Uh, we, we walked from 8 a.m., I mean, I'm sorry, 8 p.m. in the darkness all the way till about 4 o'clock in the morning till we got to the across the border uh, uh, wow. the barn that we stayed at. Yeah. Uh, and in that process, again, there are security points, there are checkpoints or, um, that, that you had to go through, yeah. but you had to, again, be very careful not to make so, any noises to, yeah, to get caught. You're not on a trailways bus, you're not on a taxi, you're not on Uber, you know, you're, you're walking. You're walking. At one point, actually, we were walking in swamplands and wetlands that I had to take my wallet out of my back pocket and put it in my shirt pocket because we were up to about here in swamplands and wetlands walking in the, um, in, in the um, area of the, of the border. So it's the, the guide, you, how many others? Um, there was a guide, me, and there was another teenager who was in the same boat as I am and a family of four with grandma who wow. were leaving Iran. Um, um, to just go to Turkey and um, find their way to another place wow. in the world that better than Iran. Okay. So, uh, like you mentioned, <laughs> there are a lot of stories along the way. Yes, sir. Tell, tell one or two of those kind of harrowing, frightening elements. Well, um, the, um, again, one of the disappointing part of it was that, you know, I was told in two weeks you'll be in the United States. I was in Turkey for 10 months. Uh, I sent my passports to eight different countries, eight different regions. I went, I traveled to, to, to a couple of different countries myself, uh, and it was all application received, rejected, received, rejected. Uh, there was a guy in Turkey who, um, uh, his job for money would make you legal. I had a passport that was uh, from Shah's time passport, so I didn't have a new passport because I couldn't get a new passport from the new government because I was supposed to uh, serve in war. So his job was to make your passport legal. So he stamped my passport. He uh, put a stamp that I left Tehran's airport. Uh, he left, uh, he put a stamp on my passport that I came to uh, Turkey legally. I mean, it was just like, you know, so it was legit. But at the time when I left to Turkey in 1982, uh, they had a coup, military coup themselves. So they had soldiers, military soldiers all over and they were checking people's documents and anybody who was suspicious uh, they were arrested, they arrested them. At the time in 1982, there was a two, there was a, a refugee camp in a border city by, between Iran and Turkey. There was two million Iranian people who lived in those uh, refugee camps because they were caught in the process of either coming to Turkey or after Turkey or so. So every day you live with the fear. Actually, most of the times I stayed home. I didn't even leave the place because I was afraid that if I went outside and I didn't look right, or, and I couldn't speak the language, of course, uh, that I might be arrested, and if my, uh, my documents did not meet the requirement, I might be shipped to that refugee camp. So mm. um, most of the times I stayed home, and I didn't go, and I was in Istanbul. It took se seven days, by the way, to go from Tehran, where I left, to, uh, to get to Istanbul. And um, um, 
I found out later on my dad had a heart attack after I left because of the, all the worries and anxiety. Hmm. And we finally called uh, when I got to Istanbul on that um, Saturday morning or Sunday morning or so, and we called my mom and let her know that uh, where I was and uh, she was here in the United States visiting. And um, my dad's best friend says, "Here, I have somebody I want to talk to." And um, wow! So ten months have passed, or a year? Ten at this months point? passed. Yeah. Ten months passed, and my dad was furious because I couldn't get to the United States because the goal was to go to the United States, not to Turkey. So I have an uncle who lives in Vienna, in Austria, and he says, I'll go get him out of there. Don't worry about it. So he had a friend. And again, it's just, it's, in the 80s, smuggling business was a great business, by the way. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a booming business. And in the 80s, he finds a guy. He says, hey, this is my nephew. I want you to bring him to Austria. Fine, no problem. He uh, charges 500 German mark, which was equal to about $300 or so back then. And uh, he agreed to bring me to uh, Austria and give him, you know, just deliver him to my uncle. Well, we went through Bulgaria. We went through, back then, Yugoslavia. Now it's divided. But back then, Yugoslavia, we get to Yugoslavia, uh, the, uh, Austria border, and he says, you see those lights on the other side? And I said, yes. He says, I'll see you on the other side. Like, wait a minute. You were supposed to, I'm, I'm used to people smuggling me out of the country and hold my hand and guide me. And he says, no, I'll see you on the other side. And what am I going to say to him? It's, it's just, um, so anyway. So I started walking among trucks, 18-wheelers, and at the time I was walking, there was a couple of, uh, of Austrian soldiers, the border soldiers, coming with the, with the German shepherds. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I have become a dog person since I came to the United States, but before that, dogs <laughs> are not my favorite thing. And I see big German shepherd coming at me with two soldiers. That's really scary. And again, at the time now, this is 1983, July of 1983, I'm about 18 years old, but dogs still scare me. So I pretended that I was one of the guys who belonged, or just, you know, like a, a, a co-driver or one of the people that belonged to the truck. So I started checking the tires, kicking the tires, look under the car, and they just went by, right by me, no questions asked. And I went to the other side, and I was in Austria, illegally again. Um, but I was in Austria, so he picked me up, and we drove to Vienna. And, um, you know, I'm here in Austria. This is July of 1983, illegally. And uh, we had to hire an attorney to uh, pay fine fees and um, make me legal. Again, on an illegal passport, made me legal wow. uh, in Austria. So time is passing. You haven't seen your mom and dad, family in a while. What's that, what's that doing to you? It is, um, it is tough. I, um, lost my grandfather. Didn't know where I was. Nobody knew, by the way. Again, nobody knew. It was uh, for six months. Even my sister didn't know where I was. Hmm. Um, lost grandfather. Couldn't see my parents, and um, I grew up with a very, very sheltered life because of my dad and who he was in the government before the revolution. All I had to do is call dad. Said dad, I want to go to this place. Okay, uh, we had we we had a security guards guards that uh, took us to all the places we wanted to go. And it was great cushy life, and here I am, uh, you know, not having anybody, not having any source of income, not, uh, you know, knowing anybody, not knowing the language. Uh, it was tough, uh, but again, not seeing my family, not being able to communicate with them on a regular basis, not being able to say what I was going through because the lines being checked and everything was mm. being checked. It was really tough not being able to talk. Uh, I finally got to see my mom in 1983, actually, right after I got to Austria. Um, I guess uh, 
she couldn't live uh, not knowing, so she came to Austria wow. to visit me, and um, that's and she didn't know it was illegal in Austria. And I, thought, I told her that, and she started crying. So, uh, so it was tough. But I hadn't seen my dad because my dad's position, and again in the uh, government before the revolution, he was not able to leave the country. I did not see my dad till 1988, wow. for six years. Six years. My goodness. So finally, there's a series of events that makes it possible for you to actually get to America. I know we're leaving out lots of the story, right? Uh, but take us through that. How, how do you finally get here? After many rejection from U.S. Embassy, I have an uncle who is in America who lives here in Dallas-Fort Worth, actually. And my dad just picked up the phone and um, he said, do whatever you have to do to get him out of there and get him to the United States. So my uncle and my aunt flew to uh, Vienna. Actually. Um, I got thrown out of U.S. Embassy once before that, so when I went to the U.S. Embassy with my uncle and aunt, they wouldn't let me in anymore. Um, so my uncle and my aunt went there, and um, act of God, uh, God's hand in the whole trip. Um, my aunt's father-in-law went to school with U.S. Ambassador in East Texas, uh, hmm. and he's in Vienna now. So they made an appointment with him. They spent about two hours with him. And uh, I guess they convinced him to let me come to the United States with the, as, as a political refugee. Okay. Uh, because I couldn't come to the United States any other way. And this is September of 84 now. Wow. So a two-week process from October of 82, that was going to be two weeks, it took almost two years wow. to get to the United States. Um, so finally I got a call. On September 1st of 1984, I got a call that my asylum was approved. And uh, I have to give up all my nationality, all passports, all the uh, identity and everything. And they gave me a passport that was good for two uh, months. And it was the ironic part of it, and I wish I had kept it, because when it says nationality, it says unknown. So mm -hmm. for, uh, for a year, I had no nationality when I came to the United States, because wow. the passport that, that was given to me by the UN yeah. uh, uh, through the United States. Because at the time, mm -hmm. late 70s, early 80s, uh, being from Iran in America, wasn't necessarily no, we're not a the popular thing. No, we were not the favorite people. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's, it's really interesting because when I came here in 1984 and I started uh, Mountain View College, my brother and my uncle told me, don't tell them you're Iranian. You meet somebody, don't tell them you're Iranian. So I told them I was uh, Austrian. And again, I don't look Austrian. I don't even have <laughs> an Austrian last name, first name or so. But I could speak German. So that kind of verified it a little bit. But um, no, it was not... Um, very popular to be from Iran, and again, all because stemmed from 1979 yeah. and what had happened in, in, in November of 1979. So. Yeah. So you make it to America, and um, how do you deal with this culture change? Because it's it's a it's a transition. I mean, yeah. you've been gone how long now from home since that first two years? Two years. Two years almost. Okay. You come to America. Everything's different. It's not like you already speak English fluently. Not yes and no. That's okay. all I knew. Wow. That's all I knew. Wow. That's all I knew. The, the uh, first few months where I came here, I did not go anywhere by myself. I, I went with my uncle or my aunt, and if somebody asked me a question, I looked at my uncle, if he won't like this, I said no. If he won't like this, I said yes. <laughs> and, and I have joked with him several times. I said, I'm so grateful that I knew him and I loved him and he loved me because um, if somebody says, you're from Iran, I don't like you, I want to beat you up, my uncle had said like this, oh, yes, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> it, it, it's just one of those things. Uh, but uh, I couldn't speak English, so, um, um, yeah, it was, it was really tough. Wow. Um, now, I had to go back. Before I came to the United States in September of 1984, uh, it was my last few days in Vienna. I was going from one of the uh, train stations to my apartment. I had bought some stuff that I was going to pack. And this lady stops me. She's a Catholic nun. She stops me, and she says, did you know about Jesus? 
And she asked, she, speak me, she spoke to me in German, and I said, no, I'm Muslim. She said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Iran. She said, well, let me give you a book. So she was going to talk to me. I said, no, I don't have time. I'm sorry. She said, well, let me give you a book. I said, I'll bet you don't have a book in my language. She gave me a book in Farsi. That's our language. Wow. And I took it home, and I love to read. Uh, well, I used to like to read before I went to bed. And I thought, you know, that would be a good book to read. So he gave me a, she gave me a, a copy of the Old Testament. But it was, the ironic part of it is that I was reading it. It just didn't do anything for me. It didn't make mm. any sense. It was just something to put me to sleep at nighttime before I went to bed mm. till I came here. Okay. So you come to America. Your only, <laughs> only language is yes, yes and no. Yes and no. That's, yes, that's sir. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And someone invites you to a new experience. Yes. Talk about that for just a um, we got he- I got here on Wednesday, September 19th of 1984, and I was living with my uncle at the time. And uh, Sunday morning, they all get up, and they get ready, and I'm like, where are you guys going? So we're going to church. I'm like, well, all right, I'll see you guys when you come back. He said, no, you're going to church too. I'm like, I'm not going to church. He says, yeah, you're going to church. I said, I'm Muslim. I don't go to church. We don't go to church. He says, well, these people have been praying for you. I think you owe it to them that you just go out there, and, you know, they want to see you. So okay, I'll, I'll owe it to them. I'm grateful. I owe it to them. So um, I got up, I got dressed, and I went to church. And um, the the love of Christ. Whenever I share my testimony, whenever people ask me, "How did you become Christian?" It's the love of Christ that I saw. And you're just talking about mm-hmm. what happened. At the, I wrote it down. Storms in our lives is for uh, he uses for his glory and for our good. Yeah. If I had come here in two weeks like I was promised, there would be no storm. Mm. There would be nothing in my life. There would be nothing to pray for. It was just two years, two weeks. You planned it. We came here. There was no miracle in it. But for two years, my uncle said, these people have been praying for you. You owe it to them to go there and say thank you and just they want to see because they're so happy that you're here. The moment I walked into that church, um, it felt like a celebrity walking into that church. People were (laughs) hugging me. People were crying. Uh, people were just asking me all kinds of questions. I have no idea what they're asking me. But I, I knew they were happy that I was there. I knew they were grateful that I was there because I see in the way they talked, the way they hugged me, the way they cried me, uh, over me. And I think we left the church that day like about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon after it was over because all the, uh, all the people around me. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it just really made an impression on me in that two-year process of coming to the United States. I had so many Muslim friends who... Uh, ripped me off, uh, took advantage of uh, my situation because of what I was, who I was as a young kid. And here I am, it wouldn't make any difference it was in this country or in Turkey or in Austria for these people, but yet they're so happy to see me. Mm. And, and, you know, it's just one of those things that you look at them and you say, you know, when I grow up, I want to be like them. And, um, and it was just, again, the only thing that was different in them, it was the love of Christ. And mm. That's kind of attracted me to that church. So next Wednesday night, it, they had what they call mini flocks, and there was a Wednesday night Bible studies, and and I didn't know again speak I didn't speak English. So my brother says, talk to Americans as much as you can. I'm like, okay, well I can't talk to them. So what do I say? He said, well go listen to them. I'm like, okay, I could listen to them. So I would go to these Bible studies. I went to Sunday night Bible study with the youth. I went to Sunday morning church, and and it was just only and only to learn. English. Our youth pastor actually called me up and says, hey, uh, by the way, my uh, Iranian name, um, Christopher is my, when I became a U.S. citizen, Iranian name was Saeed. So back then, it was Saeed in 1984. So he calls me up and he says, hey, um, I heard you're going for, um, to learn English. I want to help you how to speak English. I want to teach you. I want to help you. I'm like, okay, I'll go there. So 
um, I met with him, and uh, of course, he brought a Bible to teach me English. <laughs> um, uh, you want me to continue with yeah, this? Yeah, you're doing great. And, and, and um, I was going to Wednesday night Bible studies, and, this, and again, uh, in Austria, I was given a book, New Testament book, in my own language that I had spoken for 17 years. It just didn't make any sense to me. And here I am, a baby uh, English-speaking person, and the Bible, the Bible studies, the mini flocks, going to our youth pastor and talking to him. I'm, I'm understanding what he's telling me. And it just really, really, again, affected me to a point that, again, like I said, in the first Sunday I was here, I want to have what they have. So I started asking questions. I started going to these meetings. I met with them. We were supposed to meet one Tuesday afternoon a, a week because of my school schedule. I met with them more and more and more, actually, and more afternoons. And um, I became really interested in knowing more about Christ. Yeah. So that leads to a, a decision for you then. Yeah, September, uh, I'm sorry, December 12th. I came here September 19th. December 12th, I was uh, coming home, actually. Um, and I had uh, taken one of the ladies uh, who was part of the Bible study. She had asked me if I could go pick her up because her car wasn't working. I said, yeah, I'll go pick you up. So we went to the Bible study. So I brought her home. It's about 9 o'clock in, in my car. And she says, have you thought about giving your life to Christ? And I said, yes, I have. And she said, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, well, in two weeks, the day after Christmas is my birthday. I'm going to do that on my birthday. She says, well, what if you died from now until your birthday? <laughs> So, well, I mean, do you know something? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm only 19 years old. I'm not planning on dying. But she said, what if you die now? Where are you going to go? And uh, it just really made an impact on me. And she talked to me, and she talked me through it. And in my car, 9 o'clock, Wednesday night, December 12th, I gave my life to Christ. Amen. Yeah. Um, thanks. And... And we didn't have cell phones back then, of course, but I went to my uncle's house, and the phone rang and rang and rang all the way till midnight. And people, because she went home, of course, she told somebody. And we didn't have internet or Facebook to post it, so she had to call somebody. Um, so um, it just people calling me again, that love of Christ coming through, showing me how excited they were that I became a Christian. Again, it's just, it's, 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 it has stayed with me. It's in my heart. Uh, when, I, when I talk about uh, being a Christian, that is what was the essence of what brought me to Christ. Wow. And that, I'm sure that stands out then as a, one of the greatest contrasts between that and what you'd experienced growing up. Is this Absolutely. Forgiveness and love was the two things. One of the things I struggled with when I, you know, when I was talking to our youth pastor and that struggle that took me so long to just give my life to Christ is that, nah. It can't be true. I mean, it just, like, it's, it's too good to be true. Just all I have to say is, okay, Jesus, I'm a sinner. You died for my sin, and then I'm, I'm, I'm free, and I go to heaven? He says, yep. Um, and again, it's just one of those things learned, uh, you know, too good to be true. Um, it, it's, I, I struggled with it. That it just, I can't believe that it's that easy. Because I was growing up all this life. My grandmother says, remember what you do. There is an angel here, and there's an angel here. And they write down all the good things you do and all the bad things you do when you die. They put it on a scale, oh, you did bad things more than you did good things, you go to hell, and then you go to heaven because you did more good things. And I'm like, no, it's not like that anymore. It's just because of what he did. It's not what I do. It's mm. because of what he did Amen. for me. Uh, that. So those two things that stand out is the forgiveness that I'm forgiven and that he loved me so much. Yeah. And the love that, again, flow through those people, flew, flew those, through those people. Yeah. So 
um, I could sit here and then say, I'm Christian because of yeah. what he did and what they did for me. Amen. 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 So also, there's this contrast between uh, a rule-based faith, where there's a lot of things that you have to do in the home and in life, <clears throat> versus more of a following and discipleship under Christ. Talk about that for just a moment, the difference between rules and then the freedom now in Christ. Um, the best explanation, I read a book many years ago, the best explanation is that when you look at where I came from with my religion, with my background, it's about do, 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 or don't, 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 don't. But when you come to the other side and you believe in the Christ, it's not about do's and don'ts, it's about done. Yeah. It's what he has done for me, and that's what just, that's yeah. what, that's the contrast that I just always stood out with me. Um, it, it, it's done. And, and again, you know, you, you, they teach you. And one thing I mentioned is that most Muslims are, they're Muslims, again, and I'm speaking for my family. I'm not, right. I'm not general. I'm speaking for <laughs> my family. All of my family, by the way, is Muslim. I pray for them, I fast for them. All of them are Muslims. Mm-hmm. And they're all Muslims by name. Uh, they, they just don't do what they're supposed to do, like, like a good Muslim should. But when I became a Christian, it's not about, again, it's not about, and I hate to use the word doing it, but it's about lifestyle. Yeah. It's, it's not about rituals. It's not about that you have to face Mecca five times, and, you know, five times a day and say his name and it's, recite verses in Arabic. Um, what, what interests me is that I could go to my God and talk to him at any time at, with any language that I feel like it, and he's there to listen to me. I don't have to go you know, do my washing and all this stuff to be cleansed in front of him because yeah. he's already cleansed me. So those mm-hmm. are the contrasts that when I talk about, when, when, when I see the difference between the two, it's one is lifestyle-based. Yeah. One is basically action-based that nobody does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's not rituals. It's, it's, it's my, I'm spending time with my best friend yeah. that, again, I could go to him anytime I want to and I speak to him at any time, any language, yeah. any shape. And you know, that really is the, the great separator from Christianity from every other religion. Right. Is that in every other religion, there's a list of do's and don'ts yes. that you hope will put you in a place of favor with the deity. Yes. Right. Yes. And you live in this fear and anxiety mm-hmm. and constant condemnation that you're not there. And you have no certainty about the day you stand before your deity. Absolutely. The thing that separates Christianity is we have a God who has sent his son to take our place as the final payment for sin so that I no longer live in fear of are my sins paid for or will I have to face a day in which they are all put up on a big movie screen for all to see and I've got to somehow answer for every one of those. The truth in Jesus Christ is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Amen. Jesus. Amen. Amen. I don't have to fear that day. Instead, we look forward to that day as believers. We stand in confidence before our God. So I, I, there's so, much, so many things about this story that I love, but that's one of the things, of course, is so powerful. So uh, you meet a young woman who will become your wife. Talk yeah. about that for just a moment. Well, it was not easy, but yeah, it was just like, you know, <laughs> Who wants to marry a foreigner who can't speak English? But, you, know, so. you must have said yes more than no. Oh, I did, and, and I was hoping she would say the same thing. She wouldn't. She said more no, yes. No. Uh, in in, in uh, first week in June, actually, of 1987, I was working. I was going to school at UTA down the road, and and, uh, and um, I was working at Sam's Wholesale Club. 
And we had a company breakfast, and uh, this lady walks in, this young lady walks in, and I'm like, oh my gosh, she is hot. <laughs> so, uh, and it wasn't just because it was the summertime. No, I, have, no. I have friends who testified to that. So, they said, <laughs> so I asked him who, who she was, and nobody knew who she was. And, and again, back then, I didn't have enough confidence to talk to people because my English wasn't that great. And, but I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to go talk to her. And, um, you know, she's looking at me, and this is 1987, by the way, and um, she's looking at me and like, no, I don't want to talk to you. Um, and then she says, and again, again, I learned so much from so many different um, idioms I, I, learned, I learned from her or, or slangs. She said, I just have to take a rain check. I'm sitting there, and again, as a foreigner, and again, my brother used to make fun of me because, uh, you know, my brother and I are really close now, but he used to make fun of me. He says, Saeed, again, me, it's so stupid, it takes him two hours to watch 60 Minutes. <laughs> and, and, and it was because I would watch the 60 Minutes and I would write letters, uh, words down, and then I would go back and look at my dictionary. I'm like, oh, that's what they were saying. So, you know, an hour went by, I found out what 60 Minutes was talking about an hour ago. So <laughs> that's, that's how it was with my wife uh, to be now. And, and, and I'm like, she said, I'm going to take a rain check. I'm thinking, does she want me to give her a check? <laughs> because I didn't ask her a rainy day. I don't know. I, I understand that. So she had to explain what a rain check meant, and uh, that was the beginning of the stories of many uh, evenings that just uh, we sat in, our, in the Sam's parking lot, and um, he, she sat in her hood of her car, and I sat in the hood of my car, and we talked for many, many uh, nights, and I learned so much. Again, I was just I was being attracted to her. The more we talked, and I, my English was getting better, and I was learning more and more slangs. Mm. Um, but... Um, <laughs> It took her a while to, uh, yes. to, uh, uh, to, to convince herself that, do I want to marry a person? This is a, this is a word that she has always said, and rightfully so. Do I want to marry a person from a different culture? And um, so finally, uh, in 1992, we got engaged. 1993, actually, in two weeks, we're going to celebrate our 25th anniversary. Yeah. July 4th. Yeah. Um, that's our anniversary. So, um, and she's been the love of my life. And... Um, uh, it was love at the first sight, uh, at least on my side. But <laughs> it was all yes. Yes. Yeah, it was love. again. The two words that I knew, we practiced a lot. I said yes, she said no. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's been great. It's been a, uh, my point of view. It's been a great 25 years. Yeah, and, um, that's awesome. Uh, I've been blessed. So talk about your parents. You mentioned them just briefly. Uh, where are they today? What's going on in their life? Um. My dad passed away, unfortunately, um, in uh, September of 2009. Um, uh, it's, it's been the desire of my heart to see my parents and all my family members actually to know Christ. I have been, all these years I've been fasting for them, uh, praying for them on a regular basis. And, um, uh, and, and it's been, again, the human side of it has been very discouraging. To see that you, you, you testify to them, you, you become a witness to them, and yet they're still resisting it, uh, and it becomes discouraging. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, in 1984, if you had told me I was going to become Christians, I would laugh at you too. And, and, uh, but God changed my heart. So um, none of my family members, again, are Christians. My dad is buried in Iran. My mom is here now in the United States, lives in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, uh, since my father passed away, there are U.S. residents. Uh, my mom's going to be a U.S. citizen this year. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, so, it, it, again, it's just heartbreaking to see them. You share stories with them. Um, I, I, again, I'm, I'm a vessel that just like show, again, that's what I always play, uh, pray when I pray, is that God, let me show your love. Yeah. The way I live, the way I am, the way I treat things, let them see Christ in me yeah. and through me. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and um, 
this hopefully stays here. I have a brother who is completely opposite, and it's just been trouble after trouble and trouble, and, and we have such a peaceful marriage, peaceful life, and God has been so good to us, and I'm just, it's my prayer that when they look at me, the way I live, the way my wife and I, we treat each other and we are with each other, that they don't see anything else but Christ that is the foundation of this relationship, who I am, yeah. who I am, the way I am, the way I act. Um, it is because of Christ and what he has done through me. Wow. So um, that is my prayer. Um, it's, it has not been easy. It's been yeah. discouraging, but um, yeah. you know, it's all in God's hand. All I could do is just pray. And right. So specifically, this is your mom, my brother. sister, uh, my sister, her two kids, my brother, and uh, his wife, and three kids. Okay. All right. Have you enjoyed this today? Isn't this awesome? Man, what a Thank story. You. Thanks. Yeah. Once again, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Amen? He's able to do what man thinks or what we think is even impossible. So like he mentioned, if he could have never dreamed that he would be today where he is. And it, it would be difficult to, to watch the rest of his family and, and wonder, will they ever experience the grace and hope in Jesus Christ? But what we can do today is we can join him in the process of praying. So what I'd like to do is ask Christopher to stand down here and uh, those who'd like to come kind of gather around and we will pray for his family. Amen. Because God has put him in a unique spot to be able to speak hope and truth to them. So I want to pray for him, but for them that they might have their eyes opened to see the reality of Jesus. Can I say one more thing? Sure. It's, um, a few years ago, a lady came to my office. She didn't know me. She was just as a translator to help somebody else. And she came into my office, and I was talking to her. She says, she started speaking in tongues, and she prophesied over me that she says, I don't know who you are, and I don't know where you are or, or where you're from, but she says, I see you pastoring a lot of people from a different country. Hmm. And um, since then... Uh, we have held in our home in Wisconsin, we held an Iranian Bible study for all the persecuted uh, Christians who left Iran and came to all places to Wisconsin. And I'm trying to get them to come out here. I have gone through Global University and I've gotten my classes passed to become certified pastor. We have, not, we have not applied for it because one of the concerns my wife has is that, that if my name goes on a list and the Iranian government gets a hold of it, uh, that I might just not be easy. But just last week, I came across through a friend um, in a, a ministry that, uh, from Springfield, Missouri, that ministers through internet and phone to Iranians in Iran. Wow. And uh, they asked me to be a translator for them. And I submitted my application, and I just got the approval letter yesterday that they're going to use me. Wow. Um, so when, I just wanted to go beyond my family. Yeah. I want to go beyond this family that I have here. I wanted to go that God uses me for what he did for me that I could do for others, not only just with my family, but all those people that I'm gonna, hopefully I'll be able to touch in Iran. Amen, that's um, beautiful, that's beautiful. So I'm yeah, sorry. That's good, that's good, that's good. Well, let me have you stand down here, and if you'd like to come stand with Christopher to pray, please come join us. What a story of God's grace to reach down to a place of uh, seemingly impossible situation to see God do something great and to know that he has purpose in it and to see some of that fulfilled already and being fulfilled. So Christopher, I don't know if you can see everybody gathered around you here. There's a lot of folks. 
and his wife is here with him. Good, thank you. All right, y'all, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your story this morning. What you have done in one man's life to bring him out of a place where he had been and to bring him to a new place. Not just from one country to another, but from one kingdom to another. You've brought him into the, the reality of your kingdom. And you have changed his heart completely. Where there was death, there's life. Where there was no hope, there is a future. Where there was no understanding, there is full clarity. And God, we know that what you begin, you have purpose in. And what you begin, you'll bring to completion. So what you've started in this man's family, we pray for completion in it. That his entire family would come to know you. I know that's your heart. So we're simply just praying what you're already feeling and knowing. We're lifting that back up to you and asking you to open their eyes, open their heart, that they might see you. And Lord, if it takes a storm, bring the storm, whatever it might take. We can't pray this prayer without also binding Satan from their eyes, from their heart. So this morning we stand on the authority of Jesus Christ as his children, as his saints, as his beloved, as those who have been given power and authority in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, and upon your word. Where we ask you to bind the evil one from their hearts, that he might have no authority there, that this work that you've begun in Christopher will expand into their hearts as well. That this morning the enemy will be thwarted, that he'll be confused, that he'll be sent out, that there'll be moments now of clarity, moments where the eyes are opened, where there is hope, where there is a longing, and that phone calls will begin today, texts will begin today, where they're asking, where they're needing answers. Father, I know that is your heart and your plan, so we are just asking in accordance with your will already. Thank you again for this morning. And Father, I ask you that you'll continue to open the doors for Christopher and his family in the future as you've given him hope and a promise of being a leader, an influencer to others who are in Iran today or have come from Iran who are seeking answers. Father, continue to bless. Bless his feet as they're beautiful and take the good news. Bless his mouth as he speaks truth. Bless his home as it becomes a refuge for those who are in need of hope. We're just so grateful to see what you're about, Father, this morning. We lift this couple, this family up to you. And we pray all of this in the beautiful power and matchless name of Jesus. And all God's people in agreement said, amen, amen, yeah. I'd say to you this morning, if, if you're at a place today where you say, you know, I, I've been in a storm, and I haven't really surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I haven't taken the step and followed him. I haven't been baptized yet. This is your day. This is your time. Don't wait for another. You don't know what another day holds. I'd ask you to stand with us this morning. We're going to sing. But whatever the response is that you have to God this morning, would you make that in your heart today? Would you say, yes, Lord, what would you have me to do? I will respond. I will do what you've called me to do.